These are the horses. The one with the white nose stripe is called Eliza, and the all black one is called Gigi. And they are our lawn mowing system. Free grazing for horses in exchange for free grazing by horses. It's a really good win-win situation, as long as they stay in their assigned area, which they are not always great about. <laughs> Yesterday was a circus. Gigi was rolling around and I was kind of hoping she'd do it again for the camera, but they're adorable. Psycho, but adorable. They're both rescues, so they have a right to be a little bit psycho. Definitely scary trying to get in there and like help them out when they're feeling upset though and trying to go where they shouldn't. It's like, hey, freaking out horse, don't mind me, just, yeah. But they are very good at mowing the lawn and preventing the need for, um, you know, power tools to deal with the acres of field that we have. We also have elk that come through, but the horses can be forced to a slightly tighter, you know, we put them in a small area, they have to graze it all down. You are listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers Podcast. Your host is Aradia. Welcome back to the Broken Earth Spoilers Podcast. Really excited to finish the last chapter of the book today. We have been collectively on this journey for over a year, and you've stuck with me and listened to all the episodes so far, probably, because I don't know why you would jump in at the end. And... This is the last chapter. We are getting a third of the way through, despite all of my bumps along the way. We're getting there. We're getting to the end. So today we have a very short chapter, and this is a chapter of wrapping up, a chapter of conclusions, and a chapter of hooking you for the next book. This is where all of your confusion around the timelines has been completely and utterly resolved. The time hopping has all concluded together, right? All the characters have played their part. And we're set up for the characters that will be integral to the next book, to the rest of the series. We, we have backstory now. We've gotten through the backstory. Now, what are we going to do with that backstory? So today is the fifth season, chapter 23, You're All You Need. And because it is a you chapter. We know this is Essun's perspective. Also, pretty much that's where the story left off. Oh no, the story left off last with Maeov. So yeah, chapter opens in the aftermath of Hoa coming to tell Essun that a man has arrived who knows her and who is dying and who is asking to see her, if not for his sake, then for Corundum's sake. And she goes, alabaster and he says oh yeah yeah it's alabaster also he's dying and then that chapter ends and we switch over to the mayoff timeline where we learn why corundum is such an intense call on her to come see alabaster so this is moments later she's moving to the infirmary of castrima to meet with alabaster because he's asking for her and we see in the first paragraph that the building that is the infirmary was built rather than grown, right? Most of the buildings in Kastrima are these grown crystals or these crystals that were somehow quarried into homes. But this building is slabs of quarried white mica that are beautiful, but like way less dramatic. Essun has no idea why this is like this and she doesn't care. And so we never hear about it again. 
but it is also the opening paragraph. So presumably there's some Kastrima history lore side quests we could be going on if she had any interest in anything other than getting to Alabaster and seeing what's going on with him after all the years they've had apart. Lerna goes with her because he's the doctor, right? But then when they get to the door, she gives him this look of like, stay. <laughs> Do not be a part of this. And despite the fact that Lerna is a doctor who needs to look after his patients, he, he decides to, you know, not. <laughs> he decides to just let her have that space. She goes in. And the first thing she sees is Antimony, whose name she had almost forgotten until seeing her again all these years later. Antimony looks at her and doesn't appear to care at all about her or have any recognition or any anything. And there's a comment here. She, meaning Antimony, she hasn't changed since the last time you saw her 12 years ago at the end of Mayov. But then, for her kind, 12 years is nothing. Right to Antimony, that literally could have been the blink of an eye from her perspective. I think we get a POV from Hoa in, I can't remember if it's book two or book three, but we get a perspective from him where he says something about minutes versus months is like nothing to him. So yeah, to Antimony, 12 years could literally have been like a long indrawn breath of time. And for Esdun, all this stuff has happened. For Alabaster, all this stuff has happened. And Antimony is just kind of flicking in and out to check to see if they're done yet while she contemplates whatever tectonic things she contemplates. <laughs> the next thing, I love the next thing. You nod to her anyway. It's the polite thing to do. And there's still a little left of you that's the woman the fulcrum raised. You can be polite to anybody, no matter how much you hate them. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you can be polite to anybody, no matter how much you hate them. Which is honestly true. I mean, we should all be able to be polite. Politeness is not respect. It's not the same thing. Antimony completely looks past Esun to Hoa. And they have this little territory-staking negotiation kind of thing. Where Antimony says, you can't come any closer because he's mine. He being Alabaster. Antimony looks at Hoa and says, you can't come any closer to my prize to my origin that I'm currently stoning. And Hoa says, I'm only coming to protect my investment. This other stone, this other origin, who is not stoned yet, but we're going to get there. So they kind of have this little negotiation where it's like, okay, I guess we can inhabit the same space and allow each other to come close because we each have a different horse in this race. And Esun notices this in passing and thinks, oh, well, maybe none of them like each other because this is pretty much how Hoa behaved with the ruby-haired stone eater up above, and then she moves on. She's obviously missing a lot here, because this is not the same interaction. First of all, Hoa didn't talk to ruby-hair at all, and ruby-hair didn't talk to him. They just glared at each other like animals and did the threat display glare with their teeth. This is actually a verbalized negotiation. And we know, because spoilers, that these are two stone eaters with personal history, right? This is not Hoa keeping away anybody and everybody. This is not Hoa defending her from the lesser orders of stone eaters. This is Hoa and Gewa realizing that their individual games are getting very close together. This is Hoa and Gewa maybe being upset to see each other this close in on each other's plots. 
maybe there's a little bit of like, no, I'm going to save the world. No, I'm going to save the world. Don't get in my way. Don't get in my way. They've both been on this mission ever since the end of Solanagist. This is not any old interaction between stone eaters. Asun barrels through the stone eater negotiation and goes to actually see if Alabaster is still Alabaster, basically. She kneels down by the bed and is relieved to see that his eyes are the same. Even with everything else that's changed, his eyes are his eyes. It's still him. And so they're able to reconnect. And he calls her Cyan, so she has to correct him to Esun, and that kind of flip-flops several times in the chapter. Her sense of identity is very rocked by him being here, and when he keeps calling her the wrong name, it brings up the wrong associations, and like she really struggles with her identity and her name in this. Which makes sense, because then after this book, you're done being confused. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like, she had all of her things separate before, and so you were confused because all these things are siloed out. And now she's struggling to integrate it all together and make sense of it as one person. But for us, it's a lot less confusing because finally, at long last, we see how all those parts go together. Then they have a really clipped conversation in which a lot gets said, but not a lot gets said. (laughs) Alabaster tells Essun that he knew she wasn't dead. And she asks, well, then why didn't I hear from you? That's sort of important, right? We sort of had this really traumatic thing. You knew I wasn't dead. Why didn't I hear from you? And he's like, I had my own problems to deal with. I was kind of busy. And that is, he puts it off as this joke, as this, oh, I just had other stuff to do. But we know that he was actually being confined to core point and was going insane in solitary isolation with only stone eaters to talk to who don't talk back very often. You know, he writes those journals that Nasun reads later. And he's clearly losing it, right? He goes through all this grief and trauma and then gets dumped in an abandoned city by antimony. She probably doesn't come back for a few months because, like, again, their sense of time is all off. And he was just stuck there and had no way to get away, right? He tries throwing himself in the hole, all this stuff. He The only way out is suicide, and he's not really into that because he's not quite there. And it's just... He plays it off like it was his choice in this comment. You know, he's like, oh, I was busy. He would have come to her if he could have. He absolutely would have fled to her and figured out a revenge pact 12 years ago (laughs) if he had had the option. But that's probably why Antimony kept him in Corpoint, honestly, was because they would have burned out and died without using the obelisk gate far too soon. She probably was like, I have to put him on ice for a minute until the moon can get closer then we can enact the pact a decade too soon and the whole thing's ruined but these silly humans right they wouldn't wait a decade that's ridiculous amounts of planning but it just hurts how much he like still laughs it off like it's because he's an asshole rather than saying i was literally in prison ish but he does look at antimony which tells you pretty much all you need to know even on a first read he was busy being captured by antimony I mean, we see her take him away before. It makes sense that she was his jailer the whole time. And this line, his eyes shift over to antimony as slowly as a stone eater's movements. He's becoming a stone eater because he was captured by a stone eater. He's taking on the attributes of who captured him and who confined him. I don't know. I just, even on the first read, I'm pretty sure at this point I was like, 
what happens at the end of this process? He's going to be a stone eater. What does that mean? Like, because, you know, at the time of first reading this, I thought, you know, maybe stone eaters come back with totally different personalities right off the bat. Maybe they come through as their old selves right away and he's going to have to fight antimony. Nothing that dramatic happens. They very much come out of that transformation as a tabula rasa blank slate and then take however many decades or centuries to like piece their identities together. So, you know, when Alabaster dies in the next book, he's really effectively out of the story. He's not going to participate. But the first time I read this, the way his eyes moved and he's clearly turning to stone, I was like, is he gonna like end up in a boss battle with one of the women characters? Like, ah! creepy. Uh, we get a description of his body next, and he's just missing in a lot of ways. There's not a lot left of him. He's Pieces of him are gone, pieces of him are shriveled, he's wasting away from wounds, from burns, he's got, you know, part of his arm is gone. And that part is turning to stone. And that stone has teeth marks in it. And Essun looks over at Antimony and is like, right, I've seen their teeth. They would make bite marks like that. I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, it's a very uncomfortable uh, paragraph. It's just disgusting all around. Just there's smells, there's implications, there's sights. It's just all bad. And then Alabaster sort of draws her attention back to what matters, not his ruined shell, but what actually matters. And is like, so I hear you've been busy too, because they're clearly just catching up over coffee. Because that's what this conversation is, apparently. Essun sort of brokenly and truncatedly tries to tell him what the last 12 years were, and it comes out as more or less nonsense, and yet he gets it, right? Like, because obviously they both know what they went through. She doesn't have to say a lot in order for him to know what she's thinking and, like, what is underneath the unfinished sentences. He says this line that returns us to a concept that we see again 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 and again in the books. You stayed free, at least, if hiding everything you are is free. This is something we see at the very, very beginning with her, with Uche, when she's sitting with Uche's body. And she's thinking, well, he was free. Well, he wasn't really free, but now he's free. And, and that whole conundrum of living under an oppressive system, at what cost? How much can you live with not having and still call it life? Surviving versus thriving. From where Alabaster's sitting, she got to go have a family, got to live a life, got to be a normal person and be free. From where she's sitting, 10% of her got to be free, right? And everything else, all of her magic, all of her snarkiness, all of her personality, all of her history, all of her trauma, all of that was just hidden away and not a thing that she could engage with. So is that freedom or is that a different kind of confinement? No easy answers, but very important questions to pose again and again, from different angle after different angle. She updates him on having had two kids that were both origins like her. And again, she doesn't really get a lot out, but obviously he's able to put together what she means between the words. And then he switches topics, but it's not really a topic switch, but kind of. I understand why you killed Corundum, but I'll never forgive you for doing it. Which is a really, really powerful piece of their relationship. Like, this is so much of what I think my study of their relationship really hinges on, is why he said that and how it affects her. I think that that's kind of the most 
intense part of their interaction, if that makes sense. And it really staggers her also, so that might be part of where I'm getting this impression from, is I'm really trying to be in Essien's headspace, and this staggers her, so I assume that that's why I think that it's so important. <laughs> it's very important to her. And her response to being given this acknowledgement but non-forgiveness is, it's cool if you want to kill me, but I have to kill my husband first. Alabaster immediately understands because children, children are the undoing of us, so on and so forth. It's pointed out that it doesn't matter in this instance that Jija has only killed one of the children. The fact that he took Nasun is just as egregious in this particular metric of why he needs to be killed even before she allows Alabaster to kill her for murdering their first child. And then he says, well, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to do that. And he corrects himself on her name. And she doesn't know how she feels about that. Maybe he doesn't hear the little sound you make, which is neither relief nor disappointment. Like She doesn't even know if she wants the absolution of being killed or not. Like that might make it all better, maybe, you know, but at the same time, who wants to die? I have, don't have kids, so I don't really have any way of empathizing with where Essun is coming from in this but it still hits me really hard, like, trying. And then Alabaster truly changes track. It's like, okay, we've spent enough time catching up. Now we need to talk about what really matters, which is, can you connect with obelisks? Can you call them and control them? With the subtext that goes into the next book being, can you operate the obelisk gate and catch the fucking moon? <laughs> Obviously he doesn't say that all yet, but that's where he's pointed and he's knows he has limited time left, and he's always been a very direct person in this way. He would have handled this conversation pretty much as abruptly, even without the whole I'm gonna die in a few weeks factor. <laughs> so Essun is starting to undergo a lot of light bulbs clicking in series now. She doesn't want to understand what he's saying as he asks her about the obelisks. But she knows where he's going with this, like, subconsciously it's clicking and she can feel this momentum, right? Like, it's all coming together. And in an effort to distract herself from the horror that remains of your mentor, your lover, your friend, she looks away from him and looks around and spots an obelisk in knife form. Which I think is one of the coolest, most random weird things that the obelisks do. They can be these mile-long, giant floating crystals. Or they can be these weirdly shaped, hand-holdable knives. Swords? Can they be other shapes? Like, I don't know. It's the whole thing about them becoming knives is just so <laughs> random. What? And I love it. It's beautiful, gorgeous art about it. There's a really nice piece of art that shows her holding it that I'm gonna share for sure. I should read you the description though. It looks like a glass knife, but the blade is much too long and wide for practical use. It has an enormous handle, perhaps because the blade is so stupidly long, and a cross piece that will get in the way the first time someone tries to use the thing to cut meat or slice through a knot. And it's not made of glass, or at least not any glass you've ever seen. It's pink, verging on red, and then she falls into it in that trance that obelisks induce, that drawing in, falling up that we hear about from all of the obelisk users whenever we get their POV. That's what it is. And then she pulls herself back and is like, you know, sort of just freaked out by that. 
Alabaster explains that it is the spinel. And I'm sure I've said this before, but I have to say it again. Me and the audiobook do not agree on how this mineral is pronounced. The audiobook says spinal, like spinal, 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 spinel, spinal, spinel. You tell me which one sounds more like a mineral. I'm going to have to not ever agree with the audiobook on this one. I'm sure that half of mineralogy says it one way and half of mineralogy says it the other way. It's probably like niche versus niche, right? <laughs> but uh, I spent way too long learning it as spinel. So if you're an audiobook listener and that drives you crazy, I apologize. We just get to suffer together. Alabaster says, yes, this is the spinel and it's mine. I've, I've bonded with it. Have you bonded with any of them? And of course, Asun hasn't. Of course, she hasn't reached for anything that wild. Of course, she hasn't explored her talents. But ever the optimist, <clears throat> Alabaster has to ask. <laughs> and as he's asking this, she's continuing to put things together and she verbalizes the realization that he's the reason the rifting happened. He used obelisks to make the rifting happen. And everything that has happened to her starting in the aftermath of Uche's death is the result of alabaster like alabaster and he informs her that it was not just with the aid of the obelisks it was also with the aid of the node maintainers who are all at peace now and she's just like okay well that okay fine whatever whatever and he says i need your help and she says to fix it and he says no no we're going to make it worse i need your help making it worse I just, I don't know why I find that so funny, but it's like, Esun, have you learned anything about this man? Of course, he doesn't want you to fix the thing he did on purpose. Of course, he wants you to make it worse. <laughs> she is also wondering how much longer Alabaster can or even should be allowed to live in this state of cracking and falling apart and how many of his organs have become stone and... He's laughing over this conversation, much like I am, while she's, like, tabulating, like, this is an unsurvivable situation. What, what is, how, how is this resolving? And the next thing that Alabaster says that's important, this is actually very important, is that Eumenes was collateral damage to what he's actually trying to do. For all that it was a very intense, revenge-packed kind of thing to kill the society that put him in the situation of having so many dead children, even though that really does fit and you could be forgiven for thinking that that is the entirety of what he was trying to do, turns out it was actually just collateral damage, which is just like, this is a planetary thing. You could take out the largest city in the world, take out the entire civilization that dominates the world. And if that's collateral damage, that means you're thinking planetary. You know, like, again, if you're the in the audience not having put together the thing about the moon at this point, like, maybe you are, like Essun, starting to be like, huh, <laughs> maybe there's something, like, at the solar system scale I should be thinking about? Maybe, possibly. Essun is just, like, dumbfounded by all of this. Just He's looking at her dying, grinning, saying, what I want you to do, my Demaya, my Cyanite, my Essun, is make it worse. It's just like, what wild whiplash she's going through right now. And then it clicks for her because she realizes that he has never been crazy. The whole time she's known him, she thought he was insane. 
she just didn't understand enough. And it's finally coming home to her now. There's this tidal wave of it all coming together. He was never insane. Driven mad by the knowledge he has, perhaps. Different kind of insane. <laughs> Honestly, I think he is insane. He's crazy. I, I do think that, but I think it's the crazy of being the only sane person while everyone around you is insane, right? It's the insanity of being gaslit constantly by everyone and everything around you and knowing that you are right anyway, which is like a martyr complex and it's where like a lot of zealotry and like weird, weird stuff can come from. But also sometimes you have to trust yourself and you have to know in your heart what is right and true. Like, the fact that that road can lead you to weird religious extremism or other ideological issues doesn't negate the entire concept that you have to be able to be true to yourself. You cannot only rely on others to tell you what's true and right. At some point, you have to trust yourself and do what's right for you. Sometimes it turns out that you're actually much closer to the mark of what many people agree with than you thought. You just have to find the right community of people. <laughs> Which, again, can easily slip into weird religious territory. But it can be very relieving when you hold on to a truth personally, and then you finally find people who reaffirm that you're not the only one that thinks that. That's the value of trusting yourself and trusting what you know is true and right for you, instead of trailing after other people always and never having your own opinion. So I think that Alabaster is insane in that way, not in the way that Essen was labeling him when she was cyanide. And then the last line of the book! Tell me, he says, have you ever heard of something called a moon? You have been listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers podcast, a Fox and Raven Media production. Connect with us on Discord and social media. Rate us in your favorite podcast app. And remember to support us on Patreon. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I finished it. You guys. You guys. I finished it. I finished it. Oh my god. Oh my god, I finished it. I can take the bookmark out. I finished it. <laughs> I mean, there's still a lot of work to do on the episode, but I finished it. Mmm. Mmm. I finished it. Okay. Um, I think I do want to talk a little bit of after show shop talk with you guys. I honestly forget everything that I meant to tell you last time that I shuffled on to this time. I completely forget all the stuff that I thought was important to say then, and it's just things I do want to say to you all, specifically. <sighs> Update you on the world. Before I started recording, I got all the news alerts on my apps that the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package passed the house and is going to get signed by Biden on Friday. So that's pretty dope. Otherwise, we are definitely going back to the same old, same old with the U.S. political position on the world stage. We're deporting people, imprisoning people, bombing people, coercing people, um, arguing about the wrong things, uh, letting fear of failure control our future actions. Lots of the momentum from white people wanting to deconstruct white supremacy is uh mellowing down despite the fact that the trial of george floyd's murderer is going down well i mean the jury selection is currently going down right now i mean even though that's going on there's just it's what everyone said was gonna happen 
the, the momentum's just really hard to sustain. Like people, people want to sprint on the social justice stuff that has to be treated like a lifelong marathon. And too many people want to make it a sprint and just do it on and off. And it's really frustrating to be someone who has spent nine years building the momentum internally to be able to like step into this marathon more properly not perfectly but like not as a sprinter and and to to know that I've been putting in a lot of work to like make it so that I won't burn out and then to see so many people that you know I'm trying to like pump them up and be like yeah let's go and then it just and I'm not talking about anyone in particular like it's more just the the conversations that I am part of a larger body on and I'm just kind of, you know, I had really hoped that everyone who knew better than me was wrong when they made that prediction about <laughs> this being a trending item. But nonetheless, my relationship to deconstructing white supremacy has definitely kicked up a notch that is not able to be kicked back down, right? Once your consciousness has been raised a certain amount, it can't be lowered. So, you know, I'm continuing to try to find new ways to educate myself and participate. And uh, I really want to start another podcast that allows me to have more of these conversations in full rather than just as an after show thing here. I think that I might be able to uh, get my thoughts more organized and forward. I don't know. We'll see. I need to be more regular about making podcasts. And in that spirit, I'm getting a green screen. So if I do end up doing video for the next book, which... Seth and I are trialing, we're kind of working out the logistics right now. You might be getting video from me for the next book with a real green screen, not a Zoom green screen. And so uh, that's pretty exciting, I think. We're probably going to do that for Watt spoilers as well. Oh yeah, I have decided to become more public about my identity as being a non-binary, a non-binary woman, because I'm AFAB. I kind of identify as AFAB and annoyed. But my pronouns are she, they, meaning that I want you to use they, them pronouns for me about half of the time. I've got a lot of places on the internet where I'm using my pronouns as part of my tagline or my label, and I'm really mostly getting referred to as she, her. And I, I would like it to be more like 50-50. So you, as my audience, please make an effort to use gender-neutral pronouns for me roughly half the time when you talk about me and to me, but mostly about me. I just really don't dig the binary. I just don't. I find it very confining and stressful and the whole, this is what being a girl is, this is what being a boy is. It's just, it's always been very eh. And I was raised in a very gender non-conforming, do what you want to do sort of context. So I don't really feel a lot of loyalty to the binary or to adhering to it. I never have. Obviously, if you look through any of my pictures ever, I'm, I'm really, I, I put on the girl outfit now and then. Because it's kind of fun. And, you know, I'm very much assigned female at birth, AFAB. So I understand that my socialization and position in society externally are extremely woman. So it's a part of my identity that I don't really feel like shedding. Like I can shed it or like I want to shed it. But I also don't want to be bound by the binary. So in the name of visibility, I'm non-binary. I've been doing that kind of publicly, but this is like... I mean, it's not really coming out, but it's also like, come on, guys. Like, or come on, me. <laughs> like, be more aggressive about it. What else? I told you guys last time that I moved to the Central Oregon Coast Range, which is fabulous, and I love it. Trying to build a GIS 
for it to like manage the land better and my computer is completely not keeping up with it so I'm really excited to be out here but also the tool that I went to school for to like learn about how to do stuff is like not coming through so the weather's gorgeous and I want to map things and the software isn't softwaring. But spring is coming and we are gardening, we are landscaping, well, landscaping. I'm pulling blackberries out of shrubs. It's landscaping. Yeah, I think I might try to get you guys a lot more Instagram posts of uh, what I'm doing outside because it's just beautiful here. I just want to share it with you guys. It's just beautiful here. What else? What else? I think I'm going to call it there. I think that that's what's on my mind today. So that's what you're going to get. And I don't think I'm going to take a break between books. I think I'm just going to have the next episode be the next book. I think that that makes the most sense with the way I'm producing things, even though Wheel of Time does tangents between books, I think. I don't think we need the fifth tangent. I think I tangent hard enough as it is. <laughs> See you guys next time. Maybe even literally.